stop to stop or halt no sorry i said stalt um the stalt is the word you're looking for How's your day been, man? Is it has it been as hot over there as it has here? I think it got up to about eighty-seven. At least that's the weather report I heard. How hot did it get over there? Our weekend was it was about about that today, but ninety-five, ninety-seven over the weekend. That's about ten, fifteen, probably closer to fifteen degrees more than it was over here. Well, and tomorrow the high is sixty-nine. Oh, weird. How quickly do you look at your phone after you get up in the morning? Pretty quickly. I was reading something that was like, I don't know, it was a, it was a high percentage. It was like, eight, you know, 60 to 80% of people look at their phone within 15 minutes of getting up. I know for years, my phone was my alarm clock. We've since, we spent the, whatever, $15 to buy analog arm, alarm clocks in our, and have those in our bedroom now, which is really nice. Because then I'm not, like, my phone isn't the last thing I look at before going to sleep. Yeah, I've been looking at to see if there are any updates on house situation stuff oh yeah yeah what's the deal you, you you guys got fully accepted yep and they agreed to do all the things we asked after the inspection oh it was just during the inspection it was pretty funny the dishwasher overflowed so we asked Oops. if they have a licensed plumber take a look at that mm-hmm. and then the other thing we asked for was just a hvac servicing Gotcha. Is there a fireplace there? It's just a gas fireplace. Okay. That's pretty simple then. I know that was something that we we wish that we had done. Oh, yeah. And so I don't know that I would, that I've done this on purpose, but there's just this like thing in my head, like somebody's buying a house. I'm like, have the fireplace checked. That's really expensive if if it's really bad. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty natural. And so it's like, that's my, you know, that's my one experience. Well, the other thing is that's not something most people generally think about. So it's sort of a area area of expertise for you, um, which is always fun. Sure. Yeah. I don't know if expertise is the right word, but more expertise than, than none. Sensitivity. Sensitivity. There you go. That's the ticket. But yeah, it's actually kind of crazy now. As far as appraisals go, mm-hmm. uh, I was talking to the loan officer and since the since that, since in 2007 2008 one of the issues that came up or that people one of the scapegoats of that whole crisis was appraisers and their relationship with the loan officers and so what they've done is they've made it so that loan offices can't actually schedule the appraiser uh-huh what happens now is the loan office puts a bid for an appraiser into a pool of appraisers and then waits to hear back to see when an appraiser in that pool will accept the bid and and then what date they'll give for that accepted bid. Hmm. So basically it's this game where you try and think how much would an appraiser want to do an appraisal in this time frame. Mm, so you pay more for tighter time frames and less for longer time frames maybe? Right, but you don't know how much that more will be or even if you're putting into a pool that has appraisers who are available in the time frame you're looking for Hmm. so it's kind of a bureaucratic mess yeah it's i was actually looking into it because i was i was going man appraising actually sounds like a pretty good gig you know you just kind of 
put in whatever hours you want to put in and you can kind of do it whenever. Mm-hmm. But I was looking at it, and apparently in Washington, in order to become an appraiser, you have to apprentice after you get the education and stuff necessary to be an appraiser. Sure. You have to apprentice for a full year appraiser before you can take the tests to appraise. Doesn't surprise me. In Idaho, you have to do that for two years. Wow. And if you think about it from an appraiser's perspective, you're training Mm -hmm. your replacement. Oh, yeah. So why would you? So what appraiser wants to take on an appraisal intern, in essence? Yeah, I mean, the only... There's a couple scenarios that I really see is one is if you've got so much work that you just can't handle, you know, you get two years of cheap labor or cheaper labor, like to where you can kind of scale a little bit. Right. Right. So I could see if you just have, you know, you have way too many calls in for, you know, appraisals needing to happen. Then it's like, okay, maybe I could see taking on an apprentice there. But then also you, when you're getting ready to retire, which then you would want to, you know, it'd be somebody you'd want to know, but I could see that, that pool staying fairly small. Right. Well, I mean, there's no such thing as being overworked as an appraiser, right? You just have more work to do in the future. So you have job security. Yeah. But if you have, I mean, at what point do you say at at a certain point, the market is going to kind of dictate that there are more appraisers needed? How? Okay, let's say you have six months of work, a solid backlog. Uh-huh. Then you're essentially stopping up money for real estate agents. You're stopping up money for the government. You're stopping up money for too many people for them to either relax the restrictions or for people who are already appraisal appraisers in your state to come from. You know, it's like a supply and demand issue, right? And if it's... If it's consistently there's not enough appraisers, then eventually there's going to be like that void is going to get filled. It's not it's not going to be until there's like you can't sell your house for a year or you can't refinance for a year because there aren't appraisers available. That's just not going to happen. Right, right. And then we're we were not at that situation. We scheduled it and they were they came out the next day. So the appraisers like that's just here. It's out two months. What? So you can't... What? Well, that makes more sense because the restrictions are higher. So there's fewer players, right? Um, to a certain to a certain degree. Two years is twice as long as one year. If I did my math right, hold on a sec. Yep, I did the math right. Remember, we're in Washington. What? <sighs> I feel like a fool. I'm going to edit all that out. I'm going to edit out my <laughs> joke. <laughs> I'm going to edit out my joke at your expense. Huh. Two months. Yeah. Wow. If you you pay for a standard. Mm. So with supply and demand, you can pay more and get it a little bit quicker. Maybe. You can maybe get it a little bit quicker. (laughs) So so how much was was the uh, appraisal for your refinance? Do you remember? No, not off the top of my head. I mean, I'm the number $300 sticks in my head, but, but I don't know. I can I can find out I can find out for you. Three to five hundred. Yeah. So someone quoted us mid September for six eighty. So that's the supply and demand out here. Capitalism ain't it great? Well, it's capitalism with uh, governmental interference. So what would you call that? Capitalism. Actually, that's like oligarchy almost, or there's a different word for it. It's almost like a 
like a skilled no uh what's the what do they have in that guilds that's what i'm thinking uh, of yeah it's almost like a guild thing except yeah. there's really i mean there's some skill i'm not going to say there's no skill in appraising but it's basically just that there's a a really high bar to entry and it's the skill isn't the the bar to entry it's the time and opportunity right right the opportunity cost mm-hmm. well not even cost necessarily but just oh you're yeah i just a few much fewer people have the opportunity to do it i'm sure that if somebody was really determined to become an appraiser eventually they could do it right it might take them a long time which then would be a uh, higher opportunity cost something that's not on our show notes that i maybe wanted to talk about with you or even explain yeah or was was you and I haven't talked about racism and we're in the middle of an upheaval right now. Uh-huh. Is that something that you want to talk about offline and then maybe bring up in the podcast? Hmm. What would be the benefit of talking about it off offline first? Mm, you and I could see if we're on the same page or if we're going to push each other in directions that one of us or neither of us likes. And we could have that conversation where, I mean, obviously in any part of the conversation that we're having now, we don't have to publish anything we don't want to so it, it might be valuable just to try and have it and if it goes terribly <laughs> you just got it that is it that's the the nice thing about editing right but at this point i'm the one that's editing so it's basically if i don't like it then it gets out which i don't you know i don't we you and i haven't discussed that you haven't sh- you know I ha- i'm the one with the editing software and i don't know if um i don't know how you feel about that we haven't talked about it about you editing Mm-hmm. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, I know you appreciate it, but is is there anything that I've cut out that you're like, oh, why didn't why did he why did he cut that out? No, nothing I can think of. At least when I was going through the show notes. Then again, I also trust you. Yeah, yeah, trust is uh, trust is helpful. And I, you know, and likewise, if you were editing, um, I would probably want to listen. I mean, I and I definitely give you the option to listen to it before. But I can also add stuff back in that we it doesn't it doesn't edit the original files. It just edits the I don't know how to describe it exactly. But it doesn't change the original file the original uh-huh. like files that we have. It just it just edits a it's called a project in Ferrite. Okay, cool. Yeah, I think you're probably more conservative than I would be on, on what gets into the podcast, which is probably a, a good thing, I would say. And so yeah, and I'm becoming a little less conservative as I'm now listening to popular podcasters like Joe Rogan. And like, oh, he just left an error in. And uh-huh. million, millions of people download every podcast from him. Right, right. Like he, he had a, he had a, just a straight technical glitch where his voice sounded like the, the Transformers huh. for about a, sec, about a second. And he was just like, what is going on? Because they, they had a um, an earthquake slash uh, like power. They had a power surge, I think. They might not have had an earthquake at all. It might have just been a power surge. But okay. it made his voice sound really weird while he was talking. And then, and then all their lights went out and their cameras turned off. That actually happened to one of the church services at First OBC. Like my wife and I went to listen to the service in the, in one, on Sunday afternoon. Mm-hmm. Um, not this week, but the week before, and we got about twenty minutes into the service, and all of a sudden it cut out. <laughs> and I texted someone. They said, "Oh yeah, there was a power outage." 
Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, during one of the Corona sermons, we just like for the first five or ten minutes of the service, there was no, there was nobody there to tell them that there was no voice, like no sound was coming through the 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 streaming on YouTube. Oh no! And so, but he eventually got it. He had like half started his sermon, and it probably wasn't the first. Oh, I guess it was probably just during announcements and reading the first the first. Uh, we have like a specific liturgy we go through. Yeah, yeah. And so it was it was not his actual sermon, it was the announcements and then the other stuff that they had to repeat. The first reading, so we call it. I'm curious if you've thought much about the doctrine of liturgy at all. I don't know that I have thought of it as a doctrine. I guess cuz it's not a bo- it's not a belief about God, it's a belief about the order of worship. Yeah, doctrine is is the wrong word. I guess it'd be quite simply what the Bible says about liturgy. Which you could call doctrine then. Because it is a way that we, I mean, you know, to to make the opposite point of what I literally just said, it is <laughs> it uh, it is how we relate to God, right, in, in mm-hmm. corporate worship. So you, you can call it doctrine. I don't know why I, I know why. It's because I'm thinking through it. And as far as liturgy goes, I... I'm a fan. I wasn't a huge fan before I switched to the Apostolic Lutheran Church. Uh-huh. Well, and here's the thing is like I do I find it very comforting in that I know what's happening, but depending on the pastor like I'll wake up during the last part of his sermon cuz he's got there's like I don't know I don't know what exactly if it's a change in his tone or whatever, but about 2 minutes before he ends his sermon, I'll wake up. And I don't mean I've fallen asleep, but I'm groggy. Oh, interesting. Which is really, really frustrating. And it ha- yeah, it happens kind of regardless of whether I take notes or not. That was going to be my next question. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm not quite sure. It's easier to try different things at home, like drinking coffee or sitting in a different position or various various other things. Right, right. But, you know, when you're in a church pew, it's like you only have so many options before it's like, what? You know, before you you become distracting, I guess was my point. Right. Uh. Well. Okay. Let's. Um. I mean, let's start. So, do we we start with a question, right? What's the question? How we doing? How you doing, Kyle? No, we already did that though, so it feels fake. I feel like we should do a different question. Oh, I got I got a question to start. Ready? Risk compensation. No, 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 no. Wait, you're looking at the wrong one. Am I looking at the wrong one? Well. Podcast number four. Oh, your big Q&A. You're looking at big Q&A. No, I was just going to ask you, have you built anything recently? We've got our bias towards action, so have you built anything? And you can take that as as differently as you want to. I did write a post for for my blog, Design for Strength. I read it. I saw it on the LinkedIn. Oh, that was a different post. <sighs> Thwarted. Okay, cool, man. And then you asked me. We do this both ways. Ah, what it, unless what you want to talk. Wait, unless you want to talk more about your design for strength post. It was just a post about some different physical therapy exercises I dug up for uh, rehabbing the shoulder I dislocated. Do any of them have to do with like hands hurting? Like that would maybe affect your grip strength. Hands hurting. Or grip strength specifically. I haven't written any posts on grip strength, although that that's clearly an important component to the to pull-ups because the stronger your, your grip is the less effort you have to put into 
holding yourself on the bar and therefore mm-hmm. the more energy you can put into actually pulling yourself up. Sure. So I haven't written anything on that mainly because I haven't done anything specifically for grip strength. Mm-hmm. That being said, there there are some great, probably one of the best grip strengthening exercises is called a rice dig where you basically just fill up little bowl with or big bowl with rice <laughs> and you just like dig your hand in grab it as hard as you can and do it again squeeze all the rice out and just keep doing that open and close open and close open and close until your forearm's just on fire would the uh would barley do the same thing for me yeah probably i mean you aren't going to you're going to stop a little bit sooner right because the barley's a little bit bigger but it's not that much bigger so if you've got access to cheap barley that's a good substitute we just have barley in the in the cupboard i'd have to go get rice right there's the corona out there so if you have a big mason jar or something yeah have i told you about how at my work people say the corona no they call it that (laughs) it's just funny i don't know i don't know why they do it it's just a i thought it was just one person in particular and then our the owner of our company was talking and he said the corona maybe four or five times in a company wide like it was a a company conference call essentially we we do updates every week or every other week thereabouts um right about about the coronavirus and how it affects you know the the main offices down in hillsborough or excuse me not hillsborough twalton and so how it affects oregon and then we've got mm, a third of our jobs or something are in washington and so we talk about that as well cool so what have you built? What have I been building? Trying to get back to what we were talking about. What I have been building is my patio still. Still working on that. That's a, of the available time that I have, that's probably that's probably 70% of the time. And then other than that, I'm working on, there's this book I've been reading called Opening Up by Writing It Down. And there are some, I'll just tell you that the bibliography is like 10 pages of books. Uh-huh. When was but the book it's written? 2000, I don't remember, 17, 7. So fairly recently. Yeah, in the last in the last 20 years for sure. Okay. But the the studies range from the mid 90s, I think all the way into the early 2000s. But there are eight different journaling exercises that are in this book. One of them, anyway, anyway, it's just trying, what I'm trying to do by reading that book and then, and then implementing some of these exercises is understand and actually process things that have happened to me or things that I've done or, you know, whatever it is, because when you make, when you don't process things emotionally or you don't understand you know, when you don't have a narrative, when you don't have a good explanation for things, then when you avoid thinking about them or when you do think about them, they're confusing or whatever. And so I'm just trying to kind of work through some of that stuff. Yeah, the metaphor I'm thinking of is it's kind of like you have all these items that are just kind of household items that are just strewn across the floor. And when you're able to journal and put together a story, it's like you're building bookshelves or or shelving mm-hmm. cabinets that you can put things into. The narrative is, are, is that uh, are those cabinets on the wall that you can use to then organize stuff so that the floor is less cluttered. Yeah, well, and then 
you know, to give an example that we've already kind of talked about is when I hear somebody talk about buying a house, I'm like, I, I had an experience with that and, and, and I know right. what to do with it. I've got a specific kind of narrative. It fits in. I don't have, like, I'm not, I'm not trying to understand what happened because I feel like I learned a lesson from that, even if it's not a fantastic lesson. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't, right? You could, you could make an argument. But at any rate, you learned something. But I learned something. And then whenever I think of that, there's no internal stress at all related to that. Now, if, I mean, I'd say if I was a, like, you know, I can think about some of my experiences on, in public school. Uh, I went for, I went for, to like a really typical public school, sixth grade through uh, freshman year uh, of high school. And during one of those years was an election year, right? And uh, I grew up in a conservative household with Republican parents, or at least my dad was Republican, and he was the one who talked about politics. And it was a public school in near Portland, Oregon. Everybody but me was the opposite. And I just basically spouted. Like, we, I just argued with kids on my bus all the time. Uh-huh. And, you know... So, so the, the goal of the journaling exercise is like, well, okay, so how do you process that narrative now? Like, what do you do with that now? How is that helpful in future things? Well, I mean, that age, age group is the prime age for learning to argue. Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, and I, so I could take it that way, or I could take it as like, you know, you got to pick your battles. Like, there's a couple different things, but if I don't journal, if I don't go through the work of like thinking about it, then whenever I think about politics, I could have this unresolved let's just say books all over the floor and they're not on a shelf or anything. Whenever I see the books, it's like I should do something with that, but I don't really know what to do. I see. And so, so the whole idea of the journaling is to like scaffolding our bookshelves to like catalog. And anyway, yeah, that makes some good sense. Yeah. Yep. So that's kind of what I've been. I'm actually curious. Do you have any uh, tips or ideas from that book that you'd like to share with me share with the audience about things you've learned about journaling oh let's not talk about our audience this is just this is just you and me kyle okay do you know this is this is a quick aside my favorite part about being able to edit the podcast is that i never have to interrupt you and you never have to interrupt me because i can just move the waveforms away from each other a little bit and so it seems like we're totally in sync even though when you and i are talking we're talking over each other about a third of the time (laughs) it's actually helpful too because it makes it easier for the algorithms that do the um do the automated uh show notes to differentiate between the speakers yeah and i think that our show notes will get better as as we after i i only looked at the first podcast so the other ones might be much better it might be easier for it to tell the difference in any case um as far as tips for journaling from that book the first exercise which is all i've gotten through i got through the introduction first chapter and the second chapter um the the exercise is pretty simple and he talks a lot about the benefits of the exercise and the exercise itself pretty a pretty small amount basically you for four days in a row you spend 20 minutes writing about the most traumatic events of your life now you can write about a single event four days in a row or you can write about many different events a different event each day or and some of the examples that like when they did this experiment on 
they had uh, the two studies that he cited had one had a sample size of 25 and I think the other 50 so not huge but they've done it with more later people wrote about um, you know these were affluent kids in prestigious colleges and like they were talking about some pretty gnarly stuff like being molested raped um, like watching people die and like you know stuff that you wouldn't I don't know, wouldn't necessarily expect in a suburban home, I guess. Sin is everywhere. Yeah, sin definitely is everywhere. So, so that's where I'm starting. I have, I haven't decided what I'm going to write about. I don't, but there's a, you know, actually bringing up, I mean, the, the experience that I had with the, you know, being in public school and during an election year where I disagreed with a lot of people that I was uh, close with uh, might be might be a place to start. I'm also reading through tactics and there's a particularly, he, he talks about argumentative suicide. There's a, he, he uses, I think a different phrase, but he talks about a couple different, a couple different kinds of arguments that essentially commit suicide uh-huh. in that like, there's an example of the one that I was reading about today was sibling rivalry. And it's the idea that you hold two contradictory views and you you can't hold on to both an example of this or an example that greg kokel gave was when you believe that you ought to like met what was the example he gave he gave an example from c.s lewis and gk chesterton or quotes from them at least ethics are relative and you ought not to have you basically ought not like tell people how to live which is commit suicide by itself because by saying you shouldn't tell people how to live, you're saying to that person, this is how you should live. You should live as if you shouldn't tell other people how to live. It's like, well, what are you doing right now? Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes total sense. You're treating this other culture as if they're beasts, right? When you're writing about ethics. And then when you're writing about politics, or, nah, or you're, you're writing about... Yeah, it's like ah, I don't have I don't have the argument straight in my head right now. But but when you're arguing about ethics, you're like, well, man is no more than beast. But when you're talking about politics, you're like, why are you treating these people as if they're no more than animals? It's like, well, those those are contradictory to each other. Like yep. it's interesting. I was just thinking about how it would be hard to spot that without knowing about them ahead of time in a debate. And then I'm I was you know I was also thinking like, are there views that that's an easy one to see somebody who is a an academic might hold both of those views one that you shouldn't tell people how to live their lives and two that people are are not much more than beasts and uh and that you need to respect all cultures they could have all of these views right it's like okay so those are all kind of you know we can we could look down on them but then i could also try to think like well are there things that i do that are you know, there's either views that I hold that basically commit suicide if you take them out to the out to the nth degree or whatever, and then are there things that I hold that are contradictory to one another? I haven't come up with anything yet, but I'm sure that they're there. Oh, I think we've talked about them. I mean, if you, I think it was the first episode we were talking about um, people who are vagrants and thinking about how everyone bears the image of God. Mm-hmm. Everyone, no matter what their status should hear the good news that christ died and was raised for the sins of all who 
repent and believe in his name. And yet with my actions, I tend to act like that person begging for money at the stoplight is less than human and not worth my time. To be fair, do you treat people at the grocery store any differently? Well, well I think that just kind of shows it, it, it's another side of the same coin of um, holding the words of life and withholding the words of life from people who may who either would be encouraged to hear the words of life from another Christian or who desperately need to hear the words of life from a follower of Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, that's interesting. So like, so Kyle, who should you share the gospel with? My neighbor. Okay. Who is your neighbor? Going back to are the you, parable of the Good Samaritan. Are, are, are you going yeah, to preach to me the parable of the Good Samaritan? I'm not saying I do this well. I'm, I'm no, I know. preaching to myself. Yeah. Yeah, well, we all need it. Um, I think particularly in America where for so long we've been able to be so comfortable with the idea that most people generally have a sense of what Christianity is, so why make things uncomfortable and mm -hmm. point out inconsistency between belief and, and life. And one of the strange blessings of, of living in a culture that is becoming more and more post more and more obviously post-christian is that we're, we're losing those those comforts um mm -hmm. I, I believe we're seeing those comforts and uh accommodations for for christianity stripped away in a way that should actually make it more straightforward to to share our faith because it's not it, it gets rid of the i'm going to make someone else uncomfortable it may make us uncomfortable, but uh, or the consequences may make us uncomfortable. But it's yeah that that cultural norm of oh they might already. Hmm. So, do you think that well one sounds a little bit like you're saying that light shines brightest in the dark, the darkest. Yes. So, are you saying that we shouldn't? Do you think people at potentially your new church would agree with you on that point on what point uh, specifically that the light shines brightest in the dark that the that the shift in the culture may make it more obvious who is christian that it may be good for christendom if we're going to use such an old old word and maybe you're not making that point and i'm hearing it and that's possible too no i think i think that's exactly the point i'm making and so then so, so then what do you think I mean, specifically, Doug Wilson would think about that, because it seems to me when I, yeah, I th I think he, I think that sounds like something he would say. Really, he seemed like man from the from that uh, article I read. It seemed like he would he would potentially uh, be very upset that you would suggest that the changes that are being made might be good for Christendom, for Christ's kingdom here on earth. Um, I, I think this is actually a really interesting application of of paradoxes, mm -hmm. where it kind of continuing along those lines of, of contradictory or suicidal arguments. Yeah, or sibling rivalry was the. Yeah, there's certain suicidal or contradictory, or apparently suicidal or contradictory arguments that I think actually are more of a paradox than they are a. Um, contradiction 
Do you have a good working definition for the word paradox? Is it just things that seem contradictory but actually aren't? That's what I was going to say. Okay, go on. I don't have a better def- working definition than that. Yeah, um, I don't either, but... And and generally there's a sense of wisdom um, that comes with discerning the unity in the apparent paradox. I mean, the, the classic one that I think of is re- rebuke a fool so that others will learn wisdom and don't rebuke a fool lest you become like him. That was both from Proverbs. There are Proverbs that are right back to back. It's the same verse. How unhelpful of Jesus. You mean Solomon? That's confusing. I mean... Or I guess the Holy Spirit. I mean, yeah, Jesus is the Word of God, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And I take that to mean, like, the Spirit is is who breathes out. And, you know, if you th- if, uh, another way to think of the Trinity is God is... God the Father is sending forth the word by the spirit so sending forth you know he's speaking and his you know the same way that our words travel on our breath like you can't hear them without air coming out of our lungs in the same way you know like the word travels on the holy ghost like on the i don't know i I, mike reeves painted that word picture for me but where it breaks down really quickly is we don't necessarily love our words. We don't have a relationship with our words or our breath the way that God does with the Holy Spirit or the... Yeah, I think I think we... Does that make sense? Am I waxing eloquent? Well, I think we have to be really careful with any analogies dealing with the Trinity, no matter how helpful they are. Sure. We have to recognize that there are limits and limitations to... Um, those analogies which is why i was so quick to point that out um but getting back to the 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 helpfulness of of a post-christian culture and also desiring there to not be or desiring to fight to to stop or halt the decline into into a post-christian culture so you you would you call that a paradox kind of i don't know if i necessarily call it a paradox but i I believe you can have hold both to be true and they aren't contradictory. You can you can still believe that it's good to know who your friends are and who your enemies are and to be really clear about that. Mm-hmm. Even as it is, it is good to mean to not go down into the pit. What do you mean by that? So, if we look at go down into the pit specifically. Go down into a a bankrupt and a an obviously bankrupt culture with rulers who and and a general population that does not acknowledge the authority of Jesus. I mean, brother, we're we're there, you know. I mean, I mean more universally. Yeah, more universally than now. I, I'm saying, seeing the spread of downtown Portland and Chop being that being what culture looks like more broadly than just Mm. those instances gotcha well since you brought it up do you want to talk at least in part about about uh our country and and where we're we're headed where we've been so it's uh today is july 21st and uh just just so people have an idea we haven't you know we've we've recorded a handful of episodes now and haven't haven't talked about racism or um George Floyd's death or, um, you know, any, any of the kind of stuff that's come from that. 
and it's at least one of the conversations that you and I had, Kyle, offline was part of it is you and I have haven't dealt with racism as directly as a lot of people, partly because you and I are both white. Is that is that a fair shake of things or Yeah. Yeah. And and I think we're better we're better suited to maybe other topics. And unequivocally, you and I would both agree that racism in any kind is wrong and and the Lord hates it. You know? Yep. I think it's important to define what is racism. Sure. Uh, I would define it the same way that the Bible does, specifically like, you know, you and I have just been going through Galatians in a in a Bible study. Right. I would say Galatians is it two? I know it's on the first page of, it's on the first uh, what do you call it, book face? Yeah. Of of my Bible, but but the way specifically that you know where you treat somebody who is different than you as lesser than, I think it's uh, yeah, I, that is what I think of it when I think of racism. When somebody treats you poorly because of a difference between you and them, um, that's a little probably more broad. Race would be, it would be specifically because of your race. I think you could also say that racism is not willing to have the conversation with somebody who is different than you, who feels oppressed, if that makes sense. What was that quote that that was in that article you sent me, the Barking Up the Wrong Tree article about how, was it feelings become thoughts or was it thoughts become feelings? Thoughts becomes feelings, I believe. But I, you know, I, I don't, I don't have it off the, the top of the dome. But when I, you know, when I say, basically, if I say that I feel like your uh, family, Kyle, uh-huh. has treated me really poorly because I'm not part of your family, you know, let's say I interact with them all the time and you aren't even willing to have a conversation with me about that you say daniel that's stupid that you know that was that was three generations back you're crazy you're crazy and i'm not even willing to have the conversation with you or you're rather you aren't willing to have the conversation with me then i would i would throw that in with you're treating someone poorly because they're different than you and you won't even listen to the thing so when somebody who's who's black or um or a person of color says I feel like I'm oppressed by white people and you don't want to hear anything that they have to say about that, then I I would, I would consider that racism as well. And that's probably as far as I would go, you know, like direct actions and then having a conversation. And then I, you know, I do, I definitely am not like advocating for any kind of, um, I just don't know what like reparations or any of that other stuff like that different groups are calling for. Well, what if someone says you aren't listening if you don't support reparations? I would ask what they mean by that. You know, like, how does that how does that follow? I don't think that people are having the... I think typically people are not having those conversations face-to-face or person-to-person, you know, right in this COVID... Oh, for sure. In this COVID world. So somebody can shout at me over the internet, I guess. Actually, they, they would have a fairly difficult time doing that as, as, uh, as we're not on any social media. Although there is a Socratic Hobbits Twitter and... Uh, YouTube and whatever else I gave you the credentials for Reddit, I think. But anyway, I think somebody would have a, a fairly a fairly difficult time just kind of yelling out of the blue. But I would I would I would be willing to have that conversation with somebody. You know, what does that actually look like? What does um you know what does it look like to have everybody essentially? What what would it look like to have a more equitable footing? Um, what would it look like to right some of the wrongs 
that have rippled down through the decades and centuries? What would that look like? And I, you know, and I don't know the answer, but I think if we don't talk to each other about it, if we don't, especially as Christians, if we don't love those who are hurting and there is clear, like obvious hurt. And and by love, you mean listen to and then act on as, as accords with the scripture. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You you said, uh, really, I haven't phrased it the way that you just did, but love, listen, and then act like those. I, uh, <laughs> something that I could say, I'm going to say it. I don't know if we'll keep it. It kind of depends on where, if, if what you ask afterwards. But I think that the, like the organization of Black Lives Matters is particularly harmful. And using the definition I just used, racist towards black people. I'm actually just on their webpage right now looking at what we believe or what they believe. Yeah, as far as I understand, from what I've heard and uh, some some brief research, there's two there's there's two things I'd like to point out. One, the deconstruction of like modern Western notions of family, which is particularly damning, in my opinion, to any group of people. That's right here. Yep. And then the one of the one or all three of the leaders of Black Lives Matters. Um, are have identified themselves as trained Marxists and Marxists and it's typical for them to desire chaos in order to destroy current systems and then rebuild and so they don't want anything like the current American system which I will I will definitely give has severe problems I do think it's the greatest country in America. Or, yeah, I do think it's That's the greatest thing to say. <laughs> uh, I do think it's, I think that our system of governing and, you know, I just, I think it's the best that is that we have like as a world right now. I think, I think there are definitely ways it could be better. And there are people of you who have abused power, but I don't see a better one available right now i agree with that 100 <laughs> percent. do you want to talk about do you want to talk about any of these other things that we've yeah. got yeah you know i was thinking i was listening to i've listened to a couple of joe rogan's podcasts and i was like man how does he talk for three hours and i think i'm getting it i'm wondering if maybe we should be a, a night a nighttime podcast and not a not an early morning thing well one of the things that i really i don't i mean i enjoy Rogan's podcast, depending on who he brings in. The, the same oh, absolutely. I, I really enjoy um, Tim Ferriss's podcast because he tends to bring in, well, not all the time, but <laughs> I, I enjoy the times that he brings in people that I'm interested in listening to. And, and he's, both of them have a real skill at bringing in people with very, at least to me, interesting backgrounds who have, mm-hmm. who have done very incredible things. Um, so that's one of the things with this, this podcast that I was kind of thinking about, about whether we, at some point we would want to go to a model where we would bring in, uh, guests to try and give people listening to the, this podcast, that experience, or if we want to keep on the track of taking, the the mentors we've been reading in essence and yeah. and and giving people a flavor of of what we've been learning from 
from those mentors because there's there's a real sense in which authors can be mentors and mm-hmm. there is value to expose exposing people to different books and that we've been reading yeah so i could see going either way do you have a preference for one one is going to be easier to get it's easier to buy an author's book than have even 15 minutes of their time right right for sure but would you be willing to interview or talk with anybody who i was able to if i if i was to get something someone who's stupid famous would you uh would it would it be fine no matter who it was or would you like no i I would want to vet this person i would want to know who they are and why you want them on the podcast anyone that i think this goes back to what i said about editing anyone that you would be interested in talking to (laughs) on a podcast i would very much enjoy to talk to talk to on a podcast what about who I told you I would vote for this upcoming election? Who did you say you'd vote for? <laughs> and you can look back through the texts. Oh, did uh, Rogan interview them? No, no, he didn't. He didn't. You said show me the paperwork. Oh. <laughs> no, I would, yeah, I would totally go. You'd go for Kanye? Yeah, that would be... Man, if you could get Kanye in this show, that would be incredible. We'd Kanye, probably get if you're a thousand. Listening I... to this, you are welcome <laughs> on Socratic Hobbits at any time. Seriously, oh my goodness. one a.m., two a.m. Daniel we'll make time. and I will be up. We will get coffee. We will be ready to go for Mr. West. Yeah, I was thinking, do we call him Mr. Kanye? <laughs> I, I think it's pretty low that we could get Kanye. But you know what? I'll find his email. I'll uh, I'll see if Twitter. he's interested. Twitter. Is that it? That's that's how you do it. Okay, I'll get his PO box or his pager number, and we'll see if we can make it happen. Wouldn't that be funny if people anyway? I, I would be really curious to hear your thoughts on what you've been reading in the Lord of the Rings recently. Okay, but before we do that, can we talk about why it's Socratic Hobbits and not Happy Hobbits, which is why what we agreed on in our first episode? Oh right, yeah. My my sister, who is a listener, she was very offended that I did not count her as one of the beginning potential listeners. Maybe very offended is the wrong the wrong phrase. Outraged. Anyway, so <laughs> <laughs> uh, Socratic Hobbits. So we, we had decided on Happy Hobbits, and then we had a conversation where we liked asking a lot of questions, and that, that seemed pretty obvious from the beginning. And so then... I think I texted Kyle. I think I texted it to you, and you were like, "That's it." Was that it? Was that, or we were having a conversation, and we we like came up with that, something like that. The the name Socratic Hobbits did come back to thinking about the Socratic method, and and how we did want to emphasize that we wanted to talk about interesting interesting things, ask each other questions about what we're making happen in our own lives, what we're what. Um, bigger ideas and um, practical things we're reading about in our own lives. So you have the practical side of things with the hobbits, and then you have the deep questions with Socrates. Sure. Okay. Check. Got that done. Yeah, so I finished the first uh, Lord of the Rings. Let's get to it. We'll get through it. Saruman. Is that how you say his name? Do you say it different than that? That's basically how I say it. My mic just... Hmm. It's on a stand, and the stand just went from ten, you know, like ten inches above to zero, and was just in my lap. Does that make sense? Oh, so we'll both have funky things with our mics in the middle. It'll be of this. fine. It'll be fine. 
Okay. Is that was that your low tech issue? You, something yes. like your mic fell over or something? Uh, actually, the pop filter thing I'd set up fell. Yeah. I mean, if 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 it is what it, what I think it is, then just call it a coffee filter. The coffee filter I set in front of it fell over. Why didn't you try a handkerchief around your face like I suggested? I don't have any. You don't have any handkerchiefs. Nope. Put your head in one of your sleeves then. I don't know. Do you not have any masks that you wear for work? Or anywhere? Oh, I do have sort of a mask type thing. Do you want me to go get that? You know, you don't have to. I mean, you can maybe do it next time if you um, have made yourself a liar twice over. <laughs> but I'm going to send you a link for a pop filter. And maybe a stand. All right. I don't think you're a liar, Kyle. I just think you accidentally lied. I forgot. Um... Yeah, okay. Here's an interesting question. Is okay, did you lie? Even if it was unintentional. Well, I'm trying to remember, did I tell you that I'd have it by the next No, you didn't say you'd have it by the next one, but you did say you would get it. Okay. So I haven't lied yet. Mm, sneaky Kyle. Well that's um, why I asked. I know. Well, the thing is you could have said you you were gonna do that. Um, I don't recall. But let's say that you did. Let's say you said I'd have it. I'll have it by the next time, and then you didn't make up. Then yes, I lied. Even if it was unintentional, even if it was totally an accident. Yeah. Okay. I've heard people make the opposite argument, like ah, it wasn't intentional. I didn't intentionally lie. It's like well, but you still lied. Mm. I was like well, it's different. Like, well, okay. Like if I so if if I'm in Walmart and I grab a thing of I don't know cookies, I don't know what I'd get from Walmart, but. Let's say I grab a, a box of cookies and I do legitimately forget to pay for it. Or actually, let's make this something that they'd actually care about. I grab a video game console and I walk out of the store and the alarm bells go off because I haven't paid for it. Do mm-hmm. they look at me like I am shoplifting or not? Well, that depends. Do you stop when the alarms go off? Um, okay, so so if I stop when the alarms go off, then I'm not shoplifting? lifting no i don't think so i mean well hold on a sec one they're not going to stop you if you don't stop that's true but but that's you know what that's a totally different issue let's say are you shoplifting at that point i think actually by the law you are not to be like totally frank however i think that you are stealing okay or 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 to take another example from someone we know who act who the the home improvement store accidentally forgot to charge him for something while he's building his house. And with his wife's encouragement, he went back and went through all the layers of management necessary to pay for that thing because in his mind, and I believe correctly in his mind, he believed that he would be stealing from that store if he didn't pay them the 600 bucks or whatever it was for that um, that thing for his home. I think it was a sink. Hmm. I've had, I've had, it's been awkward with when I've gotten something for free from a store because they've, you know, sent it or forgot something or whatever. And it's like, you tell the cashier and the cashier is like, you know, like you go back into the store and you're like, you guys gave this to me for free and on accident. It's like, but they really don't want to deal with you at all. Like they just want to do their, they just they're they're there for six hours or eight hours or whatever it is, and then they want to go home, like they don't. They have no skin in the game. Yeah, yeah. Which gets, well, I mean, this isn't in this week's notes, but that that does um, play into something you had in the future notes. Um, in the for later notes. For later notes, yes. Which I'm very 
interested in talking about. Have you been working on those? I haven't been adding a whole lot, but I have been actually looking at them so that I'm aware of the blog articles that you've posted and uh, have read them before we actually get together and talk. I'm curious, how do you find some of these blogs? Like barking up the wrong tree. I don't remember. Uh, how did I find? Uh, I think I just Googled barking up the wrong tree. Like I Googled thoughtful blogs like uh, Farnham Street, which is the one that I like a lot. And that was one that came up. Man, Farnham Street is gold. Farnham Street is. Yeah. Uh, Shane, I think is the guy's name. Uh-huh. Uh, he's, a, he's a smart cookie. He is a little too... He gets kind of woo-woo, though. Okay. If you listen to his podcast. Oh, he has a podcast. Uh, he sure does. Here's a plug for another podcast for all of you listeners out there. All you hobbits. Farnham Street. The Knowledge Project. I think that would be a podcast I would be interested in listening to. Shane Parish. Okay. Yeah, that's his name. Yeah, so risk compensation is kind of interesting. So... Do you want to talk about that real quick? I, yeah, I don't know how much. So we we're 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 clicking over to seventy seven minutes on mine, or six seventy seventy six thirty. Right, right. You didn't say a whole lot about the Lord of the Rings. Oh, what do you want to talk about? Oh, just what your impression was, and you you. Asked I'm just like I'm Saruman mostly. Quickly. Yeah, Saruman. He's uh he just got the Ents just like destroyed. Or think. Orthanc is that is that's his little well is I thought Orthanc was the tower itself is it not? Um, it is the tower itself. I mean, the wizard's veil is. Is it also the city? Yeah. Okay. Do you? Okay, I got a question for you. I don't want to know the answer, other than yes or no. Do the hobbits find out why there's pipeweed in Orthanc? Yes. Mm, I'm gonna look out for that. That's a big like. That was a big thing for me. I was like, that is such an interesting. Like it came from the Shire. What the heck? Mary and Pippin find pipeweed, which is just tobacco, I guess. Um, or it seems like it's just tobacco. It is just tobacco. In one of the guard houses of Orthanc. Um, yeah. So I thought that there was more of a battle at Helm's Deep. I think I think I do remember reading, and that's probably because I remember that from the movies. But yeah, it's like really short. Yeah, it's very glossed over. I do remember reading somewhere that um, Tolkien does not particularly relish writing battles, um, which is why Bilbo gets hit in the head during the Battle of the Five Armies. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that's a good uh, Deus Ex Machina to get himself out of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he. Uh, something I'm noticing is that Tolkien is a or is a master of compressing time and expanding time. As, and I think I said this in the first podcast, but or the first one that I had read. Yeah, yeah. But just like compressing and expanding time, he's just like I'm amazed at which at with with the deafness that he has. Yep. All right. Now we can talk about risk compensation. Do you know what I haven't said, I think, during this entire time that we've been talking? Um. So I, I will not have to... No, I've said um. I will not have to edit out my wife's name so far. And there was great rejoicing. I know, and there was great rejoicing. Uh, great. Uh, yeah, so risk compensation. The idea is, is that you have an internal temperature of risk that you essentially like. 
if you're not taking a certain amount of risk, then you feel like you're not growing or you feel essentially too safe. It's boring would be maybe another way to say it. And we talk about this in investment where you have like a desired rate of return and then there's a certain amount of risk that you have to take. Some people are risk averse and some people are not. Um, I think more people are probably risk averse than they realize, especially like now with COVID and like people are, are not wanting any more risk. They're too, you know, if, if we're going to use the temperature analogy, they're too hot. And so they're, they're not looking to get any additional risk. They're looking to mitigate risk. But it, Shane Parish makes the point in his blog that, you know, there were not actually reduced fatalities when seatbelt laws came into effect because people felt like they were safer with the seatbelts and so they drove more recklessly essentially to make up they, they weren't obviously thinking this in their head they weren't thinking i need to be more risky they were just thinking i feel safe and so they could they felt comfortable to take more risks true so um yeah I don't know. I thought there would be kind of maybe more to talk about that, but it's just an interesting idea to think about how, like, so he also talks about how when you're designing a system in order to, like, actually make it, uh, what would you say, actually safer, then you need to hide the risk mitigation that you're making. So instead of requiring seatbelts, you might um, change the requirements for the structure of the vehicle to have a crumple zone in the front of the car mm -hmm. and that people wouldn't feel safer necessarily for them for that but it, it would make them safer or if you were to change maybe the max speed limits then but that's a little more visible the cars one comes up pretty easily in my mind but there are maybe other ways that you can you know, I can think about ways to do that investing as well um, to just automate things so it's like not on your mind. You decide on a on a you know you decide on a risk category that you feel comfortable with, and then just leave it, and you don't. You know, you basically don't don't watch it. I mean, to a certain degree, he seemed to be talking about kind of dumb risk. Did you read the uh, the article, the actual article? Then yeah. Okay. The, the blog post. Mm-hmm. And the reason I say he seemed to be talking about dumb risk is that a number of the examples he gave, like the seatbelts, seem to talk about risk where the people who are in those situations don't... It, the, the risk is nebulous enough that they don't fully maybe understand the ramifications of the risk coming into effect and so i think so so the downside yeah people don't fully appreciate or understand the downside and what the downside could be and, and they don't understand the uh probability of of that of that event and so there's a miscalculation that goes on with just just a thoughtless a thoughtlessness about not because humans tend to be poor at um, estimating probabilities as a, a one-off event, when you're when you're looking at the probability of a, of a really traumatic event happening, you don't necessarily budget correctly for it, and that's one of the and the reason I'm talking about that is 
that's one of the, I think, traits of someone who's more experienced with managing risk is that they've, in whatever arena they're in, they've learned, I mean, it could be investing, it could be downhill skiing or downhill ski racing or formula car driving. It's, it's, it's a matter of having the expertise necessary to make those informed decisions about whether the risk is worth taking as opposed to necessarily just yielding to that intuitive uh, gut feeling about the level of risk. It's actually thinking about, okay, what is the reward? What's the probability of getting the reward? What's the, or, or how high is the reward? What's the probability of getting that high reward? How high is the, how high is the level of pain or, or how, how significant is the consequence? What's the probability of that consequence? And, and looking across that spectrum and then making an informed decision about if the risk is worth it or not is then based off of those actual numbers of kind of a, you're doing a cost benefit analysis. Sure. And I th- but I think in, I mean, as far as thinking about the, the risk compensation, that temperature gauge is, is kind of like a, it's almost not, I mean, you, you said it was dumb, but it's, you could even just say it's unthinking, right? Right. It's not, it's not like, it's not like people are driving more recklessly specifically because they have the seatbelts or the safety things are in place. And I'm just, I've kind of been trying to think while you've been talking, which does not make me a very good active listener. Um, but you know, I guess the reason that we're talking about driving and safety and as well as investment is like, what else are we really going? I mean, we live in such a bountiful place, wealthy place, really. There's not, you and I, I don't think at least I'm not particularly concerned about losing my life every day. Although, you know, I drive enough that maybe I should. Um, by far the most dangerous thing I do on a regular basis. But I don't think the Farnham Street article was purely about ultimate risk it was also about risk with with career risk with finances risk with relationships sure and i guess so so then how would you make a riskier or less risky decision how would you how would you make a relationship safer or less safe does that make sense well i mean it's a little bit weird because we're both we're both married as far as like that relationship goes but but as far as say relationship with with someone you you would like to have as a friend or someone you'd like to have in your network do you only go towards people who you think will say yes i'll hang out with you or do you go out on a limb with someone and who well let's go back to the kanye west example do you ask kanye west to be on this podcast or are you averse to the risk of him saying no <laughs> I I would be ecstatic if he said no. Really? If I got a response, if I got a response from him, that'd be so. That'd be cool. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if he said anything, I would be. Yeah, it's like he actually heard. Yeah, so maybe that's that's a bad. But but someone in the middle where I get what you're saying though. Is you could you could keep going? Someone in the middle. Yeah, I I mean I think you 
you you finished it accurately. Someone someone in the middle is someone that you would feel hurt if they said no, but at the same time you would be really happy if they agreed to mentor you mm-hmm. or spend time with you or um, work with you on a project, that sort of thing. It was, a, it was a fun little conversation there. Um, yeah. Should I hit uh, end? Yeah, I'll do the same. Ready? One, two, three. We don't need to time it. <laughs>